Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and welcome to the finale of the first season of Insidious Inspirations. We will be back with the season two early next year, so stay tuned for exactly when that will be. But for now, if you like the show and you like what we do, consider leaving a review. It's one of the best ways to get our shows into the ears of new listeners, and it helps us do what we do. So, without further ado, this week's episode. There's no holiday more strongly associated with horror, with all things creepy, frightening, and supernatural, than Halloween. It's the time of year when creatures of legend come alive on TV and movie screens, in kitschy decorations, as suffocating rubber masks in costume shops. Witches and werewolves, zombies and vampires and ghosts all pour out into the streets, heading from door to door to ask for candy and play a few Halloween tricks. But the holiday goes beyond family-friendly entertainment like pumpkin carving, haunted hayrides, and trick-or-treating. It represents a time when the veil between the worlds is at its thinnest, when dark and mysterious forces can reach across the Great Divide and take hold. Halloween serves as the setting of dozens of famous horror films from the Halloween franchise itself, to recent flicks like Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, to movies dedicated to honoring the full freaky spirit of the holiday like cult classic Trick or Treat. But how did we get here? How did the ancient, somber celebration of All Hallows' Eve become the multimedia sensation it is today? Linked to everything from mazes packed with scare actors to It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. To begin to understand the origins of the holiday where all things that go bump in the night come out to play, we need to go back thousands of years to a Celtic festival marking summer's end and ushering in the dark, cold days of winter. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. Halloween as we know it today can be traced back to the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain. 2,000 years ago, the Celts living in the area that is now Ireland, the United Kingdom, and parts of northern France marked their new year on November 1st in accordance with the end of the harvest and the beginning of the winter seasons. The shorter days, the bitter cold, and the hard, unforgiving ground that would not bear food for months led to the winter being associated closely with death. On the night before the new year, October 31st, it was believed that this proximity to death thinned the boundary between the realm of the living and the dead. On Samhain, this veil would be at its most permeable, allowing living humans to sneak glimpses at the other side and permitting spirits the chance to slip back earthside, if only for a night. This breakdown of divide between the worlds brought both good and bad. Visiting spirits could cause trouble, killing crops and bringing chaos with them but it could also allow some, they believed, to predict the future and see what the next year might bring. In order to celebrate Samhain and prepare for the coming winter, people would stock up on as many supplies as possible to tide themselves over in the months when nothing would grow. They would burn crops and cattle bones in massive sacrificial bonfires, a source of welcome warmth and light in the crisp late autumn air and thick blackness of the night. They donned festive costumes, often consisting of bones and animal skins, and danced, drank, and feasted with their neighbors, one last chance to honor the abundant times before the lean ones set in. Throughout the night, there was an unspoken understanding that long-dead loved ones might stop by to join into the party, too. Throughout the night, there was an unspoken understanding that long-dead loved ones might stop by to join in on the party, too. They were welcome, too. Food and drink would be left out for them to share the wealth with those who came before. However, it wasn't just those who were sorely missed that might stop by for a visit. 
restless, angry spirits might return to seek revenge on those who wronged them in life. More dangerous still, some of the spirits that joined in the revelry might not have been human at all. Fairies, the little people, the fair folk, whatever name you might choose to call them, there was a chance they too might be drawn in by the glow of the firelight and the flimsy boundaries between natural and supernatural. To protect themselves and obscure their identities from these intruding enemies, legend has it that celebrants would cover their faces with ash from the fire. And eventually, this practice evolved into wearing masks. Once the celebration was finished, the people would light the fires of their house's hearth from the sacred bonfire, bringing a little of its protection with them in their homes. By around 43 AD, the Roman Empire conquered the majority of the Celtic lands. Over the course of their occupation there, Roman traditions were combined with the celebration of Samhain. One was Feralia, a late October holiday intended to honor the dead. Another was the feast day of Pomona, the Roman goddess of fruit and trees, whose symbol was the apple. Pomona's celebration being melded with Samhain over the years may explain the tradition of bobbing for apples, which survives to this day at many Halloween parties. But it was not only the Roman deities that would leave their mark on Samhain and transform it into something far removed from its origins. In 1000 AD, the Christian Church declared November 2nd to be All Souls Day, or All Saints Day, a church-sanctioned day to honor the dead. This was likely an attempt for the Church to replace the Celtic traditions, keeping familiar elements to make conversation more appealing to those still adhering to the original practices. All Souls Day was celebrated with bonfires and merriment, just as Samhain was, and with costumes. Gone were the animal skins and masks, however, replaced with the garb of saints, angels, and devils. The practice of leaving out food and drink for wandering spirits was replaced with gone a-souling, wherein children would go from house to house, asking their neighbors for little gifts of ale, food, and money. One of the treats given out to the children was soul cakes, sweet round cookies with a cross carved into the top, studded with raisins and other dried fruit. While going out souling, people would carry hand-carved turnip lanterns decorated with faces, with a candle placed inside. This new, church-friendly holiday was also referred to as All Hallows, and the night before was All Hallows' Eve. I bet you can see where this is going. Eventually, All Hallows' Eve was shortened to Halloween. So how did the holiday make its way to the United States, to become the multi-million dollar candy and costume industry and favorite holiday of horror fans that it is today? In the early days of Puritanism, you weren't likely to find much in the way of Halloween festivities. The strict religious practices there forbade most singing, dancing, drinking, and generally anything fun. However, harvest time celebrations and spooky celebrations were not entirely absent. By the mid-19th century, there was a distinct American tradition of marking the harvest with parties, ghost stories, and fortune-telling. But it was the Irish immigrants that fled to the States in the wake of the potato famine who brought the spirit of Halloween over with them. Along with that spirit came a variety of traditions, such as souling, which would eventually become trick-or-treating, and the carving of turnips, which would later be replaced with the far easier-to-carve pumpkins. While the food, festivity, costumes, and mysticism of Halloween have endured, Halloween was once associated with something else, too. Romance, and the quest to find true love. Young women dipping their toes into fortune-telling might use yarn, apple peels, or mirrors to try and predict the name of their future husband. The apple peels would be tossed over their shoulders and, if all went according to plan, would fall in the shape of their true love's initials. The yarn was used for a similar purpose. For the mirrors, the hopeful young woman would stand in a dark room, holding a candle, and looking over her shoulder to catch a glimpse of her future husband's face. 
Scottish fortune tellers would recommend a young woman assign the names of each of her suitors to a hazelnut, one for each man. Then she would toss the nuts into the fireplace. If a nut burned to ash in the fire instead of popping or exploding, then the man for whom that nut was named would be the one to marry her. If she didn't want to waste perfectly good hazelnuts, she could grind up walnuts, hazelnuts, and nutmeg, and mix them with sugar. If she ate the mixture before bed on Halloween night, she would have a dream about her future husband. The practice of trick-or-treating and holding community Halloween parties skyrocketed in popularity from the 1920s to the 1950s, when suburban neighborhoods began going all out on the candy in an attempt to placate potential vandals or mischief-makers. Though the origin of the trend can't be pinpointed entirely, it's often attributed to one frustrated woman from Hiawatha, Kansas, Elizabeth Krebs. Every year, Mrs. Krebs would be irritated beyond belief as her town descended into chaos, groups of wild children running through the streets, vandalizing the neighborhood, and trampling her garden until it was hardly recognizable. The morning after Halloween, 1912, she had finally had enough. The following year, she used her own money to throw a Halloween party for the local children, hoping to give them enough treats and merriment that they would head home exhausted, too tired to wreak any more havoc that night. Unfortunately, the party was not enough of a distraction, and the vandalism went on that year as usual. So, for Halloween of 1914, she went all out. She got the community in on the safe, structured fun, getting the entire town on board. They hired a band to play, put on a costume contest, and even marched a parade through the town. Unlike the previous year, it actually worked. The town's children were too preoccupied with the festivities to bother crushing anyone's prized garden. And the next day, there were far fewer messes to clean up than there had been in previous years. News of the event's success began to spread throughout the state and beyond. Soon enough, it became standard practice for towns to throw massive Halloween parties offering good, clean fun with a few scary decorations as an alternative to All Hallows' Eve mischief. Over time, the Halloween parties shrank in scale, moving from town squares to schools and individual homes, while individual attractions like hayrides, pumpkin patches, and haunted houses continued to pull in the public. Today, Halloween as we tend to think of it has traded in sacrifices and ghostly offerings for plastic skeletons, cardboard witches, and fun-sized candy bars. But it still carries some of the old magic. The sense that on Halloween, anything can be possible. It can feel like there really are spirits roaming the earth for their one special night a year, or as if more tangible living horrors can surface, sometimes as close as just down the street. Up next, we take a look at some of the modern folklore surrounding Halloween, the stories that have replaced the thinning of the veil with contemporary anxieties. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. Most people don't spend their Halloween night worrying about vengeful spirits from the beyond coming back to get their vengeance, or inhuman visitors stopping by for some tricks and treats. But we've still found ways to scare ourselves silly every year just the same. Every year, local news outlets run warnings telling adults to check their children's candy carefully when they get home at the end of the night. There are bad actors out there, they say, hiding poison, drugs, and even razor blades in the tasty treats. But has that ever actually happened? It's a mixture of yes and no, but mostly, no, not really. The flames of anxiety were first stoked by a New York Times op-ed that ran on October 28, 1970 written by Judy Clemensrud. 
It gave no actual citations to back up the fear, but instead asked several hypothetical questions that struck fear into the hearts of concerned parents. What if the nice old woman down the block hid a razor blade in the apple she handed out? What if the colorfully wrapped candy was actually filled not just with nougat, but with deadly poison? Two days later, the piece seemed to come true when a five-year-old in Detroit died after consuming heroin. His uncle claimed that the drug had been hidden in the boy's Halloween candy. However, further investigation showed that the child had found the heroin at his uncle's house, not, in fact, at the bottom of his candy bag. But by then, the story was already in the public consciousness, and not nearly enough people stuck around to read the reactions that were printed in November. The rumors persisted for the next several years until another real case seemed to verify them once more. On October 31, 1974, a child died in Houston, Texas. This time it really was due to poisoned candy, cyanide in a pixie stick. But here's the catch. The candy didn't come from a stranger, but from the boy's own father, who had deliberately poisoned his son and hoped to use the legend of the tainted Halloween candy as a cover story. But as is often the case with seemingly salacious stories, the truth didn't matter much. The Houston Candyman killer was all anyone could talk about. More and more unsourced and unsighted claims popped up in seemingly reputable publications. A 1975 Newsweek magazine article claimed that, over the past several years, several children have died and hundreds have narrowly escaped injury from razor blades, sewing needles, and shards of glass put into their goodies by adults. Again, there was absolutely no evidence to back up this claim, but it didn't matter. Over the next decade, towns would start banning trick-or-treating in an attempt to keep children safe. In other towns, hospitals and police departments would offer to check children's candy to assuage parents' fears, going so far as to x-ray the little plastic pumpkins and ratty pillowcases to look for sharp objects. In 1985, a thorough study was conducted by Joel Best, a sociologist at the University of Delaware, to determine if these claims had a soft, caramel center of truth. What he found was a whole lot of nothing. Aside from the two cases already mentioned, where the threat came from a loved one rather than a case of stranger danger, the study could not turn up a single confirmed death or even injury from Halloween candy that had been tampered with. Still, variations on the rumor continue. Turn on the news today and you will see festive fear-mongering as news anchors weave horror stories of marijuana-laced edibles being handed out to children, or brightly colored fentanyl masquerading as candy. This time of year, it seems that the zombies and ghosts aren't the only thing that refuse to die. Though the tale of the poison candy is the most pervasive, it's not the only perennial urban legend that rears its head every year as soon as the leaves start to change. There are similar fears around food tampering that accompany the seasonal game of bobbing for apples. For most, bobbing for apples is a wet, confusing, and frustrating party game where you dunk your face into water and try to grab an apple with your teeth. But for some anxiety-riddled individuals, perhaps those who have watched Snow White a few too many times, there are worries of poison hidden in those very apples, or even in the water itself. They can rest easy, though. There have not been any documented cases of bobbing for poison apples. However, that doesn't mean the water is particularly safe. It's a breeding ground for bacteria, not to mention whatever germs were living in the mouths of whoever was bobbing for apples right before you. If contamination is a concern, maybe stick to carving pumpkins. Another yearly fear is a bit more somber. Concerns around kidnappings while children are out trick-or-treating. It makes sense to be concerned. There are large crowds of children walking around after dark, taking candy from strangers in costumes. However, though there have been some cases of Halloween kidnappings, there is no statistical difference in risk between Halloween and any other day of the year. It is no more or less safe. A much greater risk to children on Halloween is car accidents, so please make sure to brake for trick-or-treaters. 
The final Halloween urban legend that still has a hold on the holiday revolves around decorations. Once upon a time, candles and carved pumpkins, maybe the occasional styrofoam gravestone, were sufficient spooky decor. Nowadays, higher budgets and technological advances have encouraged homeowners to go all out with animatronic ghouls, fog machines, and the most realistic fake corpses that money can buy. But what if hyper-realistic decorations at a certain house are actually real? What if a horrible accident or death is left unnoticed by passerbys, who mistake the tragedy for just another prop? It isn't common, but there have been a few cases of this over the years. In 2005, a woman's body hanging in a tree was mistaken for a Halloween decoration and left there for several hours in spite of witnesses walking by. In 2009, a person's body was left on a porch in California for two weeks due to the same assumptions. Still, it's rare, so don't go around checking all of your neighbors' fake bodies to make sure they're really fake. That's a good way to get the police called on you. Some of these Halloween legends were inspired by true events, but most of them are born from something that lives primarily in our heads and in our hearts. We are afraid of each other. Terrified that the people we think we can trust, the world around us that we think we understand, can betray us when we least expect it. It's a long way from mischievous ghosts to poison candy, but at its heart, Halloween still reminds us that there is very little in the universe we can actually hope to control. Whether it's a wicked creature from another world, or shocking violence committed by a familiar face, the world is unpredictable, unsafe, and utterly terrifying. But never forget the other lesson of Halloween. This world is also beautiful. Our friends and neighbors still come together to sing, to dance, to pass out tiny chocolate bars and carve silly faces into pumpkins. Our long-lost loved ones live on in our memories, perhaps even stopping by to watch the joy in our faces on that night when the veil is thin, just as they did 2,000 years ago. The bonfires of old flicker from the jack-o'-lanterns on our porches, and every year we can take a second to remember how good it can feel to look our fear in the face, reckon with the coming darkness of winter and the vast mysteries of the universe, and, in spite of it all, keep the party going anyway. Tonight's episode was written by Addison Peacock. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. Our editor and musician was Danny Sweet, and I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah. Our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a Bloody FM show. For more information, visit bloody.fm. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.